Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. I'm Andre Viscontis, and this is Inquiring Minds. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. We've all become armchair epidemiologists in the last year and a half. We know more about viruses and infections and vaccines and antibodies than any generation in human history. But we also know that conspiracy theories are flourishing that notions that seem outlandish or ridiculous to some are totally compelling to others, and that many people are not looking to experts for answers, but are making decisions on the basis of opinions and beliefs. What happens when we apply our newfound knowledge of diseases to parasitic infections of the mind? That's what philosopher Andy Norman wants us to do. He's researched the evolutionary origins of human reason for decades and has worked tirelessly to teach critical thinking to the masses. Now he's put his knowledge into a framework that we can all relate to in his new book, Mental Immunity, where he maps out how bad ideas can act like parasites and what we can do to generate cognitive antibodies. Andy Norman, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Andre. I've been hoping to come onto this show for a while, and it's nice to be here. Oh, we are so excited to have you. You know, we've had Jonathan Haidt on the show before. In fact, I think at our very first, some of our first earliest episodes. And so our listeners are, who have stuck with us are familiar with this idea that a lot of the beliefs that we have, a lot of the ideologies, a lot of the divisions, especially in the U.S. that divide us come from the fact that we have this tribal architecture, that, that we are sort of tribal beings. And at the beginning of your book, you, you uh, acknowledge that and say that there is something missing from that idea. So I wanted to start there and have you explain to us what you think is missing from, from that viewpoint. Yeah. So I'm, a, I'm also a huge fan of Jonathan Haidt's work. And I think his book, Righteous Mind, explains so beautifully how deeply tribal our mentality is tends to be and and how it, easily it can become tribal in a very disastrous way. But a lot of research in psychology now points to our cognitive defects, our cognitive biases, or our innate tribalism in ways that I think lead many people to kind of give up hope and assume that there's nothing we can do uh, about it, that we're just inherently destined to 
disagree, talk past each other, have our conversations devolve into pointless finger pointing. And one of the things I point to in the book is that to whatever extent we're innately tribal, human beings have differed in the degree to which they've allowed that tribalism to divide us over time. So in addition to whatever sort of biological constants we have to deal with, there are also cultural variables that allow us to mitigate our native tribalism. And so we shouldn't be giving up on the possibility of being able to think together and reason together more fruitfully. What we need to do is focus on the cultural variables and adjusting them so that we can actually begin to think together more capably. You also start or have this analogy of an immune system. And I really think that there is, this is such a rich way of thinking about thinking. (laughs) But I want to start with first the parasite. So we'll talk about why we need an immune system. But first, let's talk about parasitic ideas. And what made you think of that? Well, I first came across the idea back in the early 90s, when I reviewed a book for the journal Ethics. Um, It was a book called Challenges to the Enlightenment, and it contained an article by Richard Dawkins called Viruses of the Mind. So Dawkins's idea that memes can spread by replication through cultures, by memes, of course, he meant like bundles of information or or behavioral patterns. And the concept of a meme had has really taken off since then in such a way that we pretty much all of us accept that memes exist and that memes can spread from one mind to another. That's almost become something that certainly young people today just see as obviously true. But in the Viruses of the Mind article, Dawkins was concerned more especially to focus on on the harmful bundles of information that spread from mind to mind. So he called them viruses of the mind. And since then, a good bit of research has shown that the concept of a mind parasite actually has scientific legitimacy. So there's a team of researchers in in Europe that has shown that the concept of a mind parasite, you pretty much need this concept to understand how witchcraft beliefs spread in early modern Europe. There was kind of a moral panic and the idea that the witches are causing our crops to fail and curdling milks and uh, milk and other things. Those ideas spread through human populations in ways that it is very hard to make sense of unless you take the idea of an infodemic, the idea that ideas can spread in a viral fashion seriously. So in my book, I basically come right out and say, not only are obviously infectious ideas, mind parasites, all bad ideas, to whatever extent they are infectious, all of them are mind parasites. Of course, some of them are terribly successful mind parasites, but others are, and they can often flourish at our expense. And so you you already have this good and bad valuation of ideas. So can you tell us a little bit about how we how you set those values? Right. So I think one of the central challenges of any research program of the kind I propose in the book, I call the research program Cognitive Immunology, the Science of Mental Immunity. And by the way, I mean mental immunity to bad ideas. And that means that there's a, uh, I have an obligation as somebody who's trying to lay out the conceptual foundations of this new science to explain what I mean by a bad idea. Now, when most people hear the term bad, they assume it's just a subjective value judgment. But it turns out we don't have to interpret 
or understand the word bad idea to mean idea I happen for whatever reason to disapprove of. Instead, we can use it to mean idea with objectively problematic properties. So ideas have properties the way other things have properties. Some of those properties are logical and other ones are causal in the sense that once they take root in the brain and or in a mind and become a belief or something we we accept, they begin to shape behaviors in distinct ways. Now we can actually study these properties and gain an increasingly objective understanding of whether the ideas are good or bad. So yelling fire in a crowded theater is understood by pretty much every sensible person to be a bad thing to say. And that assignment of the term bad to that kind of utterance is not merely arbitrary. It's not just subjective. There are real objective reasons for thinking that yelling fire in a crowded theater will harm people. And we can treat ideas exactly the same way. Certain ideas are guaranteed to cause division and harm, say white supremacist views, and other ideas have an objective claim to be mutually beneficial. Think of the idea of human rights, for example. So we need to get past the kind of reflexive subjectivism or relativism regarding the goodness and badness of things. And when we do that, we can actually begin to fruitfully inquire again in a collaborative way about which ideas are serving us well and which ones are not. So this kind of gets to one of the ideas in your book that part of the problem why bad ideas, uh, just as you described them, have proliferated, have terrible consequences. I mean, you start the book with you know, a, a description of a shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue that left many people dead from a person who was anti-Semitic, who had, that's a bad idea, right? But you also point out that we have this, I don't know if we call it a value, at least in America, that everyone is entitled to their own opinion. <laughs> right. So I wonder if you can tell us why even that idea that we are all entitled to our own opinions is actually kind of a bad idea. So the idea that everyone is entitled to their opinion was originally used to liberate us from oppressive orthodoxies and oppressive governments and to create free speech. And so the idea actually earned a certain amount of deference centuries ago. And I still think it makes sense to say that we have legal rights to believe and say the things we want for the most part, right? Setting aside cases like yelling fire in a crowded theater. But let's stick to, with uh, opinions for the moment. I, th I think you're legally entitled to your opinions, but it doesn't follow, of course, from that, that you're morally entitled to those same opinions. So it's not always a good idea to help yourself to all of the things that are politically permissible or legally permissible, right? There are things that are legal, but still wrong. And I would argue that indulging in white supremacist fantasies or misogynistic delusions or the idea that certain people are vermin, all of these are morally objectionable ideas that we are not, in fact, entitled to, speaking now, morally rather than legally. But this idea has become so ingrained in our culture that it feeds a sense of entitlement, that everyone feels as though that they have cognitive rights that supersede any cognitive responsibilities we might have. And one thing we know from history is that rights and responsibilities have to remain in a delicate balance, and that rights always come with responsibilities if we want them to remain beneficial to us. 
and and my I argue in the book that we've emphasized our cognitive rights and our right to our opinions to the exclusion of our cognitive responsibilities in such a way as to create kind of a almost a libertarian ethos where if I want to peddle conspiracy theories, say Alex Jones, right? I mean, think about Alex Jones's actual legal defense for for why he should be able to spew the kind of disinformation and nonsense that he does on on his huge InfoWars platform. He basically comes back to, I'm entitled to my opinion and I'm, a, I'm entitled to share it. But it's quite clear that that level of permissiveness when it comes to destructive and dangerous ideas is wildly dysfunctional, especially in, in an age where we're digitally connected. So I urge us to rethink the idea that everyone is entitled to their opinions and actually come to understand our cognitive responsibilities and appreciate how significantly they mitigate or put place boundaries around our cognitive rights. So we've established that there are parasitic ideas, that, that they, they can be objectively bad. And we're going to talk about the immune system that we already have in place uh, to, to, to mitigate against these. But first, I want to just learn a little bit more about the parasite, about the virus, however you want to think about it, and why some types of ideas, like gossip, for example, seem to have so much more infectious power, right? Like, why are some ideas so much more infectious than others? I'm sure the, the story, the full story here has to be hugely complicated. But, you know, think of salacious rumors, right? Rumors about who's been sleeping with who. Those are the kind of rumors that get your attention right off the bat. And information or ideas that are sticky, that tend to lodge in your mind and, and remain there, I think that would add to the infectiousness of a belief. There, there's some really interesting research on, on, on how religious ideas spread. And one of the hypotheses is that if you take an idea that has a kernel of truth to it, but also make it, bend it in such a way that it's intriguingly unusual, like take the idea of a wise father, but then make him all powerful, right? And make him the creator of the universe too. All of a sudden you have something that is different and intriguing enough to spread readily from mind to mind, quite apart or in spite of the fact that it may deviate from the literal truth. And so outrageous stories, salacious stories, um, seductive conspiracy theories, uh, all of these things get more plague and they spread farther than they probably should given basic evidential standards. So now let's talk a little bit about how we can fight against the spread or these ideas? Because I think that that's something that, as you mentioned, a lot of people are finding themselves in despair, that it just seems like there's no way out. It's just going to get worse, you know, and there are real consequences that we are facing, even with the COVID-19 pandemic, as we see, there were hundreds of thousands of deaths that were fully preventable, but because bad ideas spread, people died. An excellent example, right? So, so the bad news is that, you know, there are mind parasites out there, and they're spreading rapidly and each and every one of our minds is infected by some of them. <laughs> um, the good news is that our minds have immune systems, and a lot of times they do a pretty good job of spotting and blocking bad ideas. Let me—I'll give an example in a moment. But they also often do a good job of going into a mind, and ideally, they can also rid our minds of ideas that have already taken root. That—that that proves harder. It's, it's harder to get rid of a bad idea that's already sunk roots in your mind than it is to keep a, a brand new one from sinking roots. But, but here's an example. So back in 
In April of 2020, Donald Trump marched to a microphone in the and gave a press conference where he proudly presented the idea that maybe we could inject disinfectants into people's bodies to protect us from COVID. Now, you probably remember this, the, the fuss about this. Yep. Um, apparently, he'd just come across the idea of a disinfectant, and he was quite, quite proud of the idea that maybe we could save people, protect people this way. Uh, so he, f- he floats this idea in front of you know, many reporters, cameras rolling, and this idea goes out to millions of people almost instantly. He turns to his right and looks for approval from his, what is coronavirus task force director, Deborah Burks. And she looks mortified, right? Because she at least knows enough science to know that this is a really bad idea. <laughs> As any and, parent who locks up the bleach from their children knows. <laughs> exactly. Well, it turns out, and this is fascinating, one woman who was a Trump supporter and who was taught to believe that Trump was you know, our savior, she actually called a local health official and said, I really want to protect my infant child from COVID, um, but I don't have the equipment to inject my kid. Can I just feed bleach? Can I just have my child drink it? This actually happened. So think about what that means. It, most of us have mental immune systems that are strong enough to instantly detect the idea that injecting bleach is a bad idea. So we instantly reject that as that, that means our, our mind's immune systems are functioning to some degree. But here was a woman whose mental immune system was either so compromised by her belief in Donald Trump or so underdeveloped by a lack of, say, critical thinking instruction that she was ready to poison her child. You know, you know that's a relatively easy idea for most of us to dismiss. But there are, of course, harder ones. The election was stolen. There are many mental, many minds out there that do not have enough resistance to that untrue claim, or they're absorbing enough in the way of disinformation from conspiracy theory peddling websites that they welcome this idea rather than test it and reject it. So mental immune systems can function extremely well, they can function extremely poorly, and they can even collapse and and basically ceased to function. You mentioned Robert Bowers, the man who you know, took a rifle and semi-automatic rifle and broke into the Tree of Life Synagogue, which is just a, you know, a mile or so from where I sit right now. Um, that was the very building where my kids attended daycare. So I opened the book with the story of sort of a heartwarming story of when I picked up my, my son there at the Tree of Life one day, and then contrast that with a, a day several years later when Robert Bowers, whose mind had been thoroughly taken over by anti-Semitic and Christian nationalist and uh, white supremacist mind parasites, that he became a a threat not just to himself, but to others. So uh, the program of the book is to say, it's time we had a rigorous science of mental immunity. We need to understand how mental immune systems work. We need to understand why they break down and collapse. And we need to understand how we can strengthen them and make them work better. And it turns out that when you examine the problem in that way, you start to see things that the traditional approach to teaching critical thinking have, have just missed. It turns out there are hundreds, dozens, hundreds of things we can do to strengthen our resistance to bad ideas that existing ed- educational paradigms are just not doing or not doing well enough. Enough. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Amica Insurance... We know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. One of the things I really like about this this metaphor is that it helps explain why one particular approach might work for a person in one situation and fail miserably in another. Just the same way that, you know, you can resist getting a cold if your immune system is strong, but if you're stressed because you're in the middle of final exams, you'll be susceptible. <laughs> yeah. So, so just as our body's immunity to infectious biological microbes is complicated, right? You, our mind's immunity to thought microbes, cognitive contagion, is also complicated. So you can be, you can have a high level of resistance to alien abduction stories <laughs> and a very low level of, of resistance to Scientology. So the, the full truth about what makes minds immune and what it makes them immune to and what it fails to make them immune to is complicated. But you can, in fact, learn a discipline of idea testing that makes you immune to many, many, many kinds of mind parasites. In the book, I argue that, that the famous Socratic method is one of the most powerful mind inoculants of all time. And that if we all sort of take our cue from Socrates and learn how to test ideas with questions, and, and in particular, the right kinds of questions, that we can begin to develop herd immunity to cognitive contagion. I think that's one of the things that um, you had. You have this one vignette uh, that you describe how you know you had just I, I, you had just gotten tenure. Maybe you're on the tenure track, and you were teaching your class, which you had prepared so um, so intensely. And the first semester was a total disaster. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yes. <sir. laughs> and the second semester you, what was really life changing for you. So why, why don't you tell us what happened in that second semester and what that taught you? Well, there's a couple of different anecdotes along these lines from the from the book. I'll, I'll I'll pick one of them here. It may not be the exact one you you had in mind, but I think it'll work well in this context. I was teaching critical thinking at a small college in upstate New York, and most critical thinking textbooks basically say you need to test ideas by taking a close look at the arguments for them. And here are the here are the 101 ways that arguments go wrong, and then they teach you long lists of fallacies. And I was teaching this from one of the best critical thinking textbooks out there. And basically, the students were listless. They were so tired of hearing about all of the different ways that thinking can go wrong. And they were starting to develop the attitude, man, thinking looks like a minefield. I don't want to go there. Right? <laughs> Why I was inadvertently <laughs> teaching them not to, 
to be scared of thinking. And so I basically, and this was about the time I'd come across Richard Dawkins's article, Viruses of the Mind. So I marched into class the next day and I said, hey guys, what do you, do you think a mind can become infected? And they said, well, what do you mean? Do you mean a brain? I said, no, I mean a mind. Can mind become infected? And they said, infected with what? I said, I'll tell you what, get, break into groups and think about it and discuss it and, and then come back, tell us what you think. So there were five or six different groups in the class and they all came back and said, yeah, it kind of makes sense to us that ideas can get infected with, uh, minds can be, become infected with ideas. Now, this was before the internet had become a, such a juggernaut. And so it took them 10 or 15 minutes to kind of really test the idea. Nowadays, of course, if you did the same, asked a group of students to do the same thing, they'd just look at you and like, of course a mind can become infected with bad ideas. It happens every day, right? So the idea of mind parasites, by the way, this, this young generation now, the idea of mind parasites to them just seems obvious. They're not pushing back against this kind of thing at all. And then one of the students piped up and said, well, how do you cure a mind infection? And somebody else said, by getting rid of the bad idea. And one of them said, wait a minute, is that what this critical thinking stuff is all about? Is like in inoculating us against bad ideas? And I just said, bingo. This class is all about trying to strengthen your mind's immune system. And they were like, whoa. And I said, tell you what, put aside the homework that I had scheduled. I want you all to go home and research how the body's immune system works and come back and tell, tell me how the body's immune system works. And they came back and they'd learned that T cells and B cells and lymphocytes and other cytokines, these things course through our bodies. And they, when they bump up against things that are harmful, they kind of engulf them and try to neutralize them. That's how the body's immune system works. And at the core of it all is antibodies. And I said, all right, well, what do you think the antibodies of the mind are? And they thought about it and they did some checking. And they basically thought, and they came up to a brilliant conclusion. They said, well, it seems to us the questions, especially the kind of questions that present counter reasons or objections, these seem to us to be the antibodies of the mind. And I was like, wow, guys, that was awesome. I think you're exactly right. Questions and objections are the antibodies of the mind. Let's play a game where we test each other's ideas with with questions and objections, and let's see how the ideas, uh, how they fare. And I said, and remember here, some of these ideas that you've grown used to, some of them might actually be mind parasites. Some of them might represent mind infections. So let's actually test them and let's gratefully let go of them if they prove that they can't withstand questioning. And then we're like, okay. And then we started testing each other's ideas in this kind of collaborative way. And man, this class just became the most exciting. I mean, they got so excited about this process and we had so much fun. I think I'd actually stumbled upon a better way to teach critical thinking. I've used a variant of that method ever since. And my course evaluations and teacher evaluations went through the roof and I've actually ended up being a pretty decent teacher despite uh, my rock, very rocky start. <laughs> I mean, what you described there, too, seems to be really backed up by the science of how to change people's minds, that, that the, you know, one of the only effective ways is to accept their conclusion and then ask them to kind of evaluate, like to sort of what are the consequences of it? So let's say that, you know, uh, vaccines cause autism. So let's, let's, let's evaluate like all the, all the things that, that should be true if that were the case. Um, and then as people try to explain all of the things that would have to line up for that to be true, they start to realize that there are a lot of holes in their arguments. Yeah. I love that. 
uh, suggestion. Let me build on it a little bit. One way to reach somebody who's gotten very attached to, say, a dogmatic ideology or a or a conspiracy theory, is to focus first and foremost on clarifying questions. So rather than try to combat or defeat their mistaken views, just ask clarifying questions and give them a chance to hear themselves think. <laughs> a lot of times, if, some, if you give somebody space to spell out what they think, what they think they know, they'll start to see for themselves that they don't actually know what they're talking about. But, but, but you have to be patient. And you have to let them cross that bridge themselves. All you can do is you, you can sort of lead a conspiracy theorist to, towards the truth, but you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. You can lead a conspiracy theorist close to the truth, but they have to pick it up and let go of the conspiracy theory themselves. That's part of the answer. We also, there's a long tradition in philosophy that basically says the merits of an idea are to be determined by checking its evidence. In fact, I think many inquiring minds, many critical thinkers say the proper way to test an idea is to look at, at the evidence for it. Well, it turns out you also have to look at the evidence against it. And you actually have to ask yourself questions like, well, if this were true, what else would follow? So it's not just the upstream reasons for, it's the downstream consequences of a belief that play a role in its assessment. And when we look only at the upstream evidence, we neglect the fact that sometimes an idea's consequences are highly problematic. And I think you were suggesting that you kind of play along with the conspiracy theorists, say, invite them to consider what else would have to be true if what you're saying is true, and then allow them to see for themselves that, oh, wait a minute, maybe this doesn't make as much sense as I thought. Yeah. And I, I really like, you know, I, I like the approach of sort of walking through the logic of this as opposed to just saying confirmation bias, you know, or like dismissing it. Because I think that there, you know, there are times when we have conversations with someone who has a hold of a bad idea, and it's easy to tip into their defense mechanisms. It's easy to tip into their sort of tendency to get on the defensive and defend their idea rather than to question it, as you were suggesting. And, and this is one of the really interesting and most important insights, I think, of cognitive immunology. When your body's immune system identifies something as a threat, it'll flip into attack mode and go after it. So, so if you're allergic to pollen, your body's immune system overreacts to the pollen, and that's what actually makes you miserable. <laughs> it's not the pollen itself that makes you miserable, it's the overreaction to it. And it turns out mental immune systems can overreact as well. So uh, let me tell a story that illustrates this. I was raised in a family that practically worshipped Martin Luther King as a moral exemplar. And when I learned years later as an adult that he was unfaithful to his wife, I was like, no way. That can't be true. That must be one of the rumors that J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI spread to try to smear King, right? My mind actually manufactured antibodies to fight off what turned out to be true. Martin Luther King was, in fact, unfaithful to his wife. But because I didn't want to accept where the evidence was nudging me, my mind actually generated falsehoods to protect it. That was my mind's immune system overreacting to good information. Um, and when you start looking at this, for this phenomenon, you see it happening all the time. Minds that feel threatened by questions or challenges will generate all kinds of reasons to dismiss the new information or generate reasons to dig your heels in and not let go of a problematic belief. Um, so 
I talk about this class of phenomena as autoimmune disorders of the mind. Yeah, and that's why so many interventions that that uh, people have used to try to change people's beliefs have have actually done the opposite, is strengthened them. And here's a funny story that'll drive help maybe help to drive the point home, right? So Fred the Flat Earther dies and goes to heaven. He gets ushered into God's inner sanctum, and he says, God, I've been a flat earther my entire life, and I have to ask you, is the world flat or is it round? And God says, I'm sorry, Fred, but the world is very, very round. And Fred looks at him and says, this conspiracy theory, this conspiracy goes higher than I thought. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, if you're determined to protect a f- cherished belief, like the earth is flat, you know, you'll find, a, often you'll find a way to dismiss even the testimony of God. <laughs> I, I think that uh, fanciful story, of course, right? But it illustrates the fact that a conspiracy theory infected mind can generate antibodies to protect the conspiracy theory itself. So one of the things that strikes me about Fred the Flat Earther is that he likely has a sense of belonging tied to this belief, that there is an identity that is in line with this. And this gets us back to Jonathan Haidt and the sort of tribal version. So tell us a little bit about how the sense of belonging, the sense of who we are, can interfere with our mental immune system. So not only are our brains kind of built on it, to have a sort of a tribal architecture built in, but there's a new concept from a Yale psychologist named Dan Cahan. He calls it identity protective cognition. And he's actually demonstrated that this is a real thing, like using empirical studies. And, and here's the concept. I think it's wonderfully explanatory. When you hitch your identity to certain ideas or beliefs, you start to experience challenges to those ideas or those beliefs as threats. They start to feel like attacks on you personally or attacks on your tribe. And the problem is we, we're not genetically programmed to respond in a fair-minded way or in a truth-conducive way when we feel under threat. In fact, threats generally tend to put us in fight-or-flight mode. That activates the sympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm. Which, oh, yeah, you're the neuroscientist. You can validate. <laughs> did, I, did I get it right? I teach biological psychology. You, you okay. got it exactly right. Yep. I, I had a 50-50 <laughs> chance of getting that right because I sometimes get it reversed. Yeah, so the sympathetic nervous system kind of puts us in fight or flight mode to deal with crisis. But if you stay in fight or flight mode for long periods of time, cortisol starts building up in your body, you get tissue inflammation, all kinds of negative health outcomes. So it's a good thing for a short emergency situations, but it's kind of bad otherwise. Well, it's turned out it's very bad for thinking clearly. When you're in fight or flight mode, you can't think in an, anything like an objective or fair-minded way. So when you Somebody questions an idea that's central to your identity, your ability to reason judiciously just goes out the window to one or another degree. And one of the best uh, ways to avoid this trap is to not hitch your identity to any particular beliefs, to instead say, you know what, beliefs are kind of like a furniture that might enter my mind, prove useful for a while, but eventually it's going to wear out and I'm better to toss it. Much better to think of your beliefs that way. My recommendation that instead of hitching your identity to a community of people who rally around beliefs, hitch yourself to a community that rallies around the idea of honest inquiry. You can still get your sense of belonging met, and you'll be able to learn continually without getting defensive or without feeling embattled all the time. Um, it's a much, much healthier way to, to live, and it's a much, much healthier way to learn. 
So I want to remind our listeners that Andy Norman's book, um, Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think is available at booksellers everywhere. Towards the end of the book, you have a little bit of advice for us. I mean, there's advice peppered throughout the entire book. But one piece of advice really kind of resonated me because of the imagery it elicited and something I think we all need to hear, even those of us who really think of ourselves as good critical thinkers, which is that you ask us to become practitioners, not preachers. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I think we all admire people who walk walk the talk. <laughs> and when we come across people who don't walk the talk, you know, it's easy to kind of dismiss them or, or not learn what they're trying to teach us. I think we can all deepen our own immunity to bad ideas and then by through our example. So, so here's my solution to, here's my recipe for building a wiser, kinder, more reasonable world. Focus on becoming more immune to bad ideas yourself and then just act naturally and just be yourself and let your example inspire others to try to, to want to grow in the same, in some of the same ways you have managed to grow. And I'm talking, of course, about growth towards robust mental immunity, which actually I think is a really illuminating way to think about wisdom. So my philosophical forebearers basically said, wouldn't it be awesome if everybody was wise? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't the world be a heck of a lot better if everyone was wise and everyone goes like, yeah, sure, but what is wisdom and how do you impart it? Philosophers have struggled with this question for a long, long time, and we've clearly not done a very good job of imparting it to the world. And, and I'm not sure we've done a great job of acquiring much of it ourselves either. But it turns out there's a really powerful case to be made that wisdom is really about having a strong mental immune system. And so in the book, I, I basically argue that if you get really good at spotting and removing bad ideas, that might not take you all the way to wisdom, but it can take you a heck of a lot farther than historically we've gone. So learn how the mind's immune system works, learn how to gradually strengthen it, and you can become a wiser and better version of yourself and inspire the people around you to follow you. Well, those are definitely ideas that I am proud to spread. So Andy Norman, <laughs> thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. You'll, you'll spread those mind, mind parasites? <laughs> <laughs> I will let's do call, my best. <laughs> let's call them mind symbionts, shall we? <laughs> yes. There's some good ideas out there too. How about, how about mind probiotics? <laughs> hey, I like, I, I like that. Let's do that. <laughs> we'll make a kombucha out of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Right. Thanks again. Thank, thank you, Andre. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. To learn more about Andy's work, visit his website, andynorman.org. And check out his new nonprofit initiative, the Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative at cognitiveimmunology.net. They aim to advance the science of mental immunity and develop humanity's resistance to epidemics of unreason. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rayhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Lemaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. This episode was edited by Riley Byrne. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you soon.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.